Content creation at its best. Bombpod Media. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. This is Karen Wickiam, and I am your host of STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hello, hello, hello to wherever you are, whatever time you're listening to, good evening, good morning, good afternoon. I am so excited to get on with part two of the Harold Shipman serial killer case. Lots of information to come. So before I get started, I'd like to do some shout outs and thank yous to all of you out there who listen and support me through iTunes reviews, Patreon support, Facebook group participation, Twitter, emails. You guys are great and I really, really appreciate the support. Thank you. I'd like to give an extra shout out to some iTunes reviews from Evo Mac, Samantha B, Chi SQ, and Emily72. Emily72 is one of my wonderful Patreon supporters, and she submitted a Suture Room story, which I read on the November 14th 10 Days in a Madhouse story. Actually, there's two great listener stories there, so I encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, to go have a listen, and uh, I think you'll really enjoy them. And while we're on the subject of Patreon support, I have two new supporters, and they are Howard Dully and Quinn Claire, thank you too so much for your support and to everybody else that supports me on Patreon. It is so very helpful and I appreciate all the support I get. Thanks again, guys. Okay, folks, let's get into this story. Harold Shipman. There has been some debate about when and where Shipman actually started his murdering career. Some believe it started in Todd Morden where he acquired his first position as a GP, while others believe that it started as early as the 1970s when he became a junior house doctor or a junior doctor, a new grad at Pontefract General Hospital. Pontefract is a large Yorkshire market town located in southeast Leeds in north central England. On August 5th, 1971, the General Medical Council provisionally registered a batch of successful graduates as new doctors. Harold Shipman was registration number 1470473. Before he could enjoy full registration, he would have to spend a year working in a hospital. Six months of medical experiences and six months of surgical experience, working under a firm of consultant physicians. So he did in fact go to Pontefract General Hospital, and this is where he would learn how to be a real doctor. It was a time that he would be working long and grueling hours. In fact, he arrogantly stated later when he was jailed that if he could survive being a junior doctor, prison would be a piece of cake. After finishing his junior year, he decided to stay there because he felt comfortable and because it offered accommodation for his whole family. He had just become a father to a second child with Primrose, a baby named Christopher Frederick Shipman, at 
Pontefract General Hospital, he qualified as a senior houseman. And he also acquired diplomas in child health in 1972 and obstetrics gynecology in 1974. When Shipman arrived, he was abusing pethidine, also known as Demerol. I'm going to refer to it as pethidine from this point. Pethidine is a strong opiate. It's used for pain relief, like in post-op pain or in labor and delivery. And that's where he got his diploma in OBGYN. So he had pretty easy access, or at least it was in the areas that he worked. In July 1975, an investigation had begun on Harold's drug abuse. He told the home office inspectors and the police during an interview that he had only taken pethidine once at a party when he was a student, which of course was a complete lie. It was discovered that Harold was abusing pethidine the whole time, about two and a half years when he was at Pontefract, and that he continued to abuse it when starting his new job in Todd Morden. There are very strict protocols when delivering a scheduled medication. A scheduled medication is a drug that could be abused or is very unsafe, like opiates, barbiturates, tranquilizers, life-saving drugs, etc. When giving a scheduled medication, the ordered drug has to be double-checked and co-signed by another nurse or doctor, and this includes wasting a medication. And wasting a medication is when you only give a portion of the dose prescribed due to the amounts allocated per ampule. The medication in the ampule is pretty much like a little tiny glass bottle. You snap it open at the top. It's a single use only. So you can see it's very hard, if not impossible, to steal a scheduled medication without being detected. However, a very manipulative person or desperate person can find a way around it. For instance, if a doctor orders 5 milligrams of morphine to deliver to a patient, but the stock only comes in 10 milligram ampules, you can drop 5 for the patient and waste 5 milligrams. Only, likely in his case, he drew up 5 for the patient and gave 5 to himself. The remaining liquid could be replaced with water, let's just say, and the person that comes in to co-sign the waste would often not realize what had happened. Another way that drugs are often stolen is that the, is that the nurse or doctor will give only a partial dose or not a dose at all to the patient. Um, same principle take some for themselves, take some for the patient, and the patient won't complain necessarily because they said they received a dose even though they didn't receive the full dose. And the worst part of this, other than the complete danger of a doctor or a nurse working under the influence, is that the patient never really gets proper pain relief. So there are other ways, but these are some of the most commonly used ones. A manipulative person could pull this off for a long time, but it will eventually catch up with them. It's precisely this kind of inside information and manipulation that allows bad doctors and nurses to go a long time before getting caught. And this is pretty much what Shipman did. The condition of Shipman's veins when his drug abuse was eventually exposed in 1975 suggested that he'd been shooting up pethidine for at least five years, which supports the theory that he was abusing the drugs heavily while at Pontefract. Okay, so when did Shipman start his murderous ways? Many people believe it started after he worked at Pontefract Hospital, after he was busted for being a drug addict. 
In fact, not a lot of time was dedicated to investigating his time there, even though there was a significant increase in death rates while he was working there. It is said that there wasn't enough evidence to pursue it. Now, that all changed when in 2003, an ex-nurse by the name of Sandra Whitehead contacted the West Yorkshire police with an unbelievable story. It caused a lot of people to rethink shipments almost three years as a house officer at Pontefract General Hospital. When Shipman became top news and his picture was everywhere, he was recognized by Sandra Whitehead. In her view, patients died suddenly and unexpectedly while being dealt with by Shipman. It was pointing in the direction that Shipman's killing spree started there. This could mean that his death toll was much higher than first thought, a death rate that was already obscenely high. As a student nurse, Sandra Whitehead worked on Ward 1, the female medical ward at Pontefract General Hospital, for three months starting at the end of February 1972. He was a young senior house doctor, and it was his second six-month period working on the medical wards and probably his first as a serial killer. Sandra remembers having bad memories of the time on Ward 1 because of the high number of deaths that seemed to occur there. She remembers one day three patients had died. Now, this is a high number. I worked on a ward or two before working in the ER. Three deaths in the ER, as awful as they are, would not be unusual. But on a ward, it is a lot. Because really, most people are there to heal and get better, not to die. With the exception of other areas like, you know, CCU, palliative care, places like that. But on the average ward, people aren't expected or supposed to die. Even though the police had no hard evidence, Sandra Whitehead definitely felt that he was responsible for deaths on Ward 1. The possibility felt so strong to her that she went and talked to the police, not just speculated about it. She provided them with the following information. There were unusually high deaths. She remembered on many occasions after a patient died, there would be an empty injection pack by the patient's bedside, indicating an injection had just been administered by somebody shortly before the patient died. Now, this guy was so arrogant and so cocky that he didn't even try to cover up his tracks. Sandra went on to say that he also certified an unusual number of death certificates while he was working over the three years. There is a belief by many psychologists who study serial killers that there is a key age when most of the killers move from merely thinking about killing to the actual act of murder. And here is a quote from Colonel Robert Ressler, who was an FBI agent who played a significant role in psychological profiling of violent offenders. I'll be quoting him from time to time. Quote, What I have determined is that generally between 12 to 15 years of development to occur from the time that a person starts having these early motivating fantasies to the time that they step over the line and go into human offense. So it's generally the mid to late 20s or early 30s when they start killing, end of quote. Shipman was 24 when he arrived at Pontefract and 28 when he left. So what were his triggers? What were his stressors? He was suppressing resentment and anger, and he was coping with it by shooting up pethidine. The workload for a doctor in training is very grueling. He also had a superiority complex, so he was livid that he wasn't being treated in the manner in which he believed that he should. He also had two young children, a toddler and a baby to care for. And Shipman wasn't just taking Demerol himself or giving it for an analgesic. 
He was experimenting with it on patients. Never one to be modest about his own achievements, Shipman arrogantly boasted to his colleagues at Pontefract that he liked to test the boundaries of treatment. He openly admitted to giving 40 milligrams of Valium to a young woman who had been in an accident in the ER. Now that is four to six times the regular dose. Like it's an, it's an insane dose. Usually 2.5 to 10 milligrams is given, but not 40 milligrams, especially on a presumed cognitively impaired patient. He was also known to cause the collapse of another patient by administering a dangerous drug too quickly. He was becoming morbidly fascinated by how drugs affected people and his power to control them, taking them to the brink of death. He didn't seem to care if he brought them back. Like I said before, deaths on wards are not often expected unless it's in certain areas like the ER, CCU, OR, palliative care wards. In the ER, he was like a kid in a candy shop. Drugs were more readily available, especially powerful life-saving drugs that quickly become deadly when used by the wrong person, like a serial killer. The death or near death can be more easily covered up. Here is a quote from psychologist Julia Boone. Quote, there would be opportunities there, people coming in from road accidents or whatever. And if you are a shipman and you have those proclivities, there is a temptation to push them over the edge and them come out to be the hero of the hour or the day. I did all I could do to save them, Mrs. So-and-so, but unfortunately there was nothing I could do. We did everything possible. End of quote. Can you imagine being in a tragic and terrible accident, and you actually get to the hospital, you're looking for some life-saving measures, help, comfort from pain, only to be played with like a cat with a mouse, and maybe murdered. So his targets were people who were very ill or near death. It's easy to cover that up, right? Great place to start. From there, over time, he moved on to healthy patients. He was honing his skill. He needed to push the boundaries to feed his sick desires. In Pontefract, he got a taste and there was no going back. You've done it, and all you can do is slowly perfect it and feed the need more and more frequently because you get very good and adept at dealing with it. The thrills that are associated with killing and the sense of peacefulness at the end would have been more intense in his younger days than they would later. Like a drug, it would be harder and harder to get the high and would push the limits to get it. I believe Pontefract is where he had his first taste and it was also a time of experimentation. What method of killing the patient, the type of patient and risk involved, it could have had an element of rehearsal. What works best for me to achieve the high in the most undetectable way possible. Some deaths would have left him feeling satisfied, while others would have had no fact at all. Some deaths were caused as a result of reckless experimentation with drugs, rather than the result of a positive intent to kill. And this would teach him how to kill. Now, the police believed that they had uncovered three suspected victims, three men. But they would need some proof. The key to finding this proof would lie in the medical records. The only problem was that between 1970 and 2000, the healthcare service had gone through a number of reconstructions. The hospital authority had changed and there was now a health trust in charge and over the years records were lost or simply not kept in the first place. 
the medical records were destroyed after 15 years, so there was no chance to piece together the medical background of any of these patients. What did exist, though, were the cremation records, death, and burial certificates. So as you can imagine, all Shipman's victims, suspected and still unknown, were all cold cases. As shown, there was very little to go on. Can you imagine trying to sift through unknown murder victims with little to no scientific evidence 20 years after the fact? But the police pushed forward. In April 2004, the inquiry took possession of over 54,000 sets of microfiche, 766 sets of cremation certificates, but only 28 cents of medical records could be found in the 133 cases which Shipman had certified the deaths of. They had 162 witness statements from relatives, friends, and co-workers. This helped Dame Janet Smith, a prosecutor who worked on the case, piece together what happened. As you can see, they were bound and determined to bust this monster. Here's what they put together. August 1970, he worked on the surgical wards. It was his first six-month stint. He signed 14 cause-of-death certificates. In February 1971, he worked on the medical wards. It was his second stint of six months. He signed 24 cause-of-death certificates. The high percentage of were elderly and very ill. Now, Dame Janet believes that at least half of those were suspicious deaths. Most of these deaths occurred between 6 p.m. and 12, when there would be a shift change and less staff, and it would be easier for him to go see the patients undetected. He would regularly check on his patients during the evening, and the nursing staff simply thought he was a hard-working and caring young doctor. But he was cultivating his guise, developing his M.O. In February 1972, when he worked on the wards, Ward 1 in particular, was where Sandra Whitehead was working. 81 patients died over six months. 76 of those were certified by Harold Shipman. Dame Janet believes that 34 of them may have been his victims. He was either intentionally killing these patients at the most, or at the very least, he was administering a drug, being reckless as to the consequences, not caring whether the patient lived or died. So let's think about this. He signed 14 death certificates in the first six months, 24 in the second, and 76 out of 81 in the third stint. That means, what's that, four, that means only five deaths were signed by all other doctors. It's an insane amount. During this time, his authority on the wards increased, and the nursing staff were having some confidence in him. It was a perfect fertile breeding ground for such a monster. Also, being in charge in the ward meant that Shipman could allocate which rooms his patients would be assigned to, and he would place the patients that he wanted to murder in the most remote and easy-to-commit murderous acts area of the ward, where it would be easy for him to be alone at the bedside of the patient for a period of time in the evening. Here is a perfect case study example. Thomas Columbine was only 54, but he was very sick, suffering from chronic bronchitis and emphysema. On April 12, 1972, when Shipman visited him on the ward, it would have been clear to the young doctor that this patient was dying. 
This could therefore be put down to a mercy killing if it were not for the fact that Thomas Cullipine was a difficult patient who had discharged himself from the hospital against medical advice on two previous occasions. Many of Shipman's later victims would also be described as difficult, so it is not too hard to imagine that when Shipman returned to Ward 1 later that evening, at a time when he knew the staff would be busy, his motives were less about self-desire to end the patient's suffering and more about a selfish desire to appease his urges and desires to kill. Shipman made sure he was alone with Thomas Columbine, and then he injected him with 10 milligrams of morphine. Now, this is an extremely high dose for a patient with a severely impaired lung function. Opiates affect the breathing centers of the brain. So if you're already extremely compromised, 10 milligrams will definitely kill you, if not almost kill you. So as to be expected, Shipman knew that all too well. And it seems that by the time Shipman killed Thomas Columbine, he was already finding that one death was simply not enough. Mind you, I'm sure he already killed many, many people before that. After that, Shipman started to kill at an alarming rate. In most cases of budding serial killers, in the early stages of their killing, they usually murder no more than one or two people a month. But check this out. In April 1972, Shipman killed many more than that. In fact, on one occasion, he killed five people in three days. One patient had been on the ward for less than eight hours. On May 8, 1972, he certified the deaths of two men only 10 minutes apart, and then 20 minutes before that, he had killed another woman by the name of Louis Basto. In fact, he certified four deaths that day. On June 1st, 1972 was the day that Phyllis Cooling died, and it was after that that the killing seemed to slow right down or come to an abrupt stop. It seems that he got scared because Shipman was a little too reckless with how he murdered this lady. At least one member of the medical staff on Ward 1 and probably more knew he had injected Mrs. Cooling shortly before her death. Shipman would have been worried by the fact that he was associated with this sudden death. But just as he was able to time and time again in the years to come, Shipman talked his way out of any suspicion of malpractice or negligence. He wasn't going to take any chances of being caught. He would do the same thing in the future when he was a little too reckless from time to time. It gets worse. This sick bastard didn't just have adult victims. Sadly, in August 1972, he moved on to a pediatric unit. He was there for 13 months and signed the death certificates to seven unusual deaths. Here is a case that I think stands out the most. Susie Garfit, a tiny girl with cerebral palsy, was quadriplegic and had severe epilepsy. She was admitted and being treated for a severe chest infection. Her mother, Anne, told the inquiry that a doctor named Shipman explained to her in a gentle and kindly way just how ill her daughter was and how poor her prognosis was. Shipman told Mrs. Garfit, that it might be possible to keep Susie alive by giving her some very strong medication. He seemed, according to Miss Garfit, to be suggesting that to do that would be unkind and would only prolong Susie's suffering. 
Mrs. Garfit realized that her little girl was going to die and told Shipman to be kind to Susie, but she is adamant that she did not mean for Shipman to hasten her daughter's death. Very upset, but believing her daughter's death wasn't imminent and that she was in safe hands with the kind doctor, Mrs. Garfit went to have a cup of tea. But when she returned about 10 minutes later, she found Susie was dead. Shipman likely injected this tiny patient with something that caused her death. Was this a mercy kill? Did he change his MO for children? Or was she just another victim? Yeah. I, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. Don't even get me started. Shipman may well have intended to kill more babies, but would have quickly discovered that, unlike the medical words, when a child is very ill, there is always an extremely high level of attention from both medical and nursing staff and constant love, support, and presence of the family. Simply put, the sick bastard deemed children were too risky to kill. Why don't we take a second here to give our brains a little break from that atrocity because I think that we could use it. I know I can. I'd like to talk about a company called Create Photo Calendars. This is where you can go create your own personalized photo calendar online in minutes. Simply upload your photos from your computer, smartphone, even your Instagram account. You can choose from a variety of photo page layouts and background designs. Add birthdays, personal events, and of course, they save your events, making it easier for you to create it next year. Their calendars are of top quality, and most orders print and ship within 48 hours. They have a special offer right now for podcast users only. Simply go to createphotocalendars.com to create your calendar and then save up to 55%. Just use coupon code PODCAST during checkout to save 55%. This coupon is good until the end of the year. Okay, that was good to talk to you about something nice for a minute or two. But alas, we need to get back to this sick bastard. After over two and a half years of working at Pontefract Hospital, Shipman decided to go work as a GP. Becoming a GP would be the perfect job for a murderous doctor. His victims would come to him. Working in the hospital meant that he would be low on the hierarchy of doctors. He would be so low on the totem pole that he would be under constant watch and scrutiny. And this was not acceptable to an egomaniac like Shipman. Shipman moved to a small market town called Todd Morton. He acquired a part-time position as a GP at Abraham Amrod Medical Center. This is a flat, double-fronted building with a carriage drive. Very quaint. And in the 1970s, it was the home of the town's doctors. Dr. John Grieve was a senior member of the practice, and he still lives in Todd Morton. He recalls that his practice was having some difficulties with staffing at the time. Members of the practice had to retire due to health issues. And this was the perfect situation for Shipman. He was 28 years old with tons of energy. Todd Morton was a very small town, and a new GP, especially a young one, was big news. Here's a quote from Dr. Grief. Quote, When Shipman came to this practice, he did a very good job. 
When something needed doing, he would always be the first one to volunteer. One was very much impressed by his enthusiasm. End of quote. Shipman had so impressed the other doctors at Abraham Amarod practice that after just a few months in the job, they decided to make his temporary position a permanent one. Harold and Primrose purchased a home for their young family and moved to Sunnybank. Shirley Horsfell became friends with Primrose, and her first impression of the family was that they were fairly down-to-earth and very jolly. Primrose was bubbly and vivacious and very good company. Other doctors' wives did not feel the same. They felt that Primrose fell short of the doctor's wife expectations. They described her as a woman who dressed slovenly and her children were dirty. The house was filthy, cluttered, messy, and just overall uncared for. One thing that was always in its place, though, was Dr. Shipman's doctor's bag. It was always at his side wherever he went, wherever he sat. And Shipman didn't seem to be bothered by his living conditions. Being a small-town doctor meant a lot of home visits, especially to check in on the elderly and infirm. Shipman appeared to have traditional ideas of what made a good doctor, and this is why the older people would appreciate him, because this was the type of doctor they had been used to. The patients who Shipman saw in his time there in Todd Morton hadn't a bad word to say about him. Quote, In fact, he was so perfect said Dr. Grieve, that he put his fellow partners to shame. He was very hands-on, end of quote. This just reinforced and strengthened Shipman's growing egomania. Shipman was creating himself as someone who was above everybody else in intellect and professional status, and that meant a huge amount to him. Behind this seemingly picture-perfect young doctor was another man who was struggling to control his innermost desires with the calming effects of Pathodine. He was using his position as a GP in Todd Morton to mask the fact that he was a drug addict. He got a hold of Pathodine in a couple of ways. First, he prescribed it for his patients, and then he could go pick it up from the drugstore, and then give some to his patients and the rest to himself. He could also sign the prescriptions in his patients' names, and secondly, he could get it perfectly legally from the pharmacy, and he could sign it out of the clinic as well. GPs visiting patients in the community would carry narcotics to help patients that may be going into labor, having a heart attack, kidney stones, that kind of thing. He used the practice as a front to obtain the drugs. He could get larger amounts than simply through writing a prescription, and he could have a constant supply with him without arousing suspicion. He still had to fill out documentation and log the medication for legal reasons. It's monitored closely by authorities. He was living on borrowed time. He could only get away with this for so long, no matter how good he thought he was at deceiving everyone. It wasn't sustainable, that amount of pethidine. In 1975, an inquiry was put into place against him. The Home Office Drugs Inspectorate and the West Yorkshire Police Drug Squad did do a check and found that shipment was obtaining abnormally large quantities of pethidine from local pharmacies. Because Dr. Shipman had fooled everyone, he was able to talk his way out of it. If they had only examined him, they would have seen more than enough evidence of his drug abuse. He was taking the drug to such an extent that when it was discovered, many of his veins had collapsed, and not just in his arms, but in his legs, feet, and groin as well. He started to have seizures and blackouts. 
once in a parking lot of his practice, and several times in the waiting room in front of his patients. It was likely that his blackouts and seizures were from overdoses or withdrawals. On May 1975, an ambulance was called to Sunnybank. Shirley Horsfall remembers Primrose calling at the house one day saying that Shipman had collapsed in the bath. Primrose thought that he had had a heart attack and he was taken by ambulance to the ER. How his drug abuse was not discovered, I have no bloody clue because they didn't seem to discover his track marks that were all over his body. And I don't know why they didn't do a drug screen. It makes absolutely no sense. Had they done that, they would have seen that he was using huge amounts of pethidine. So... To his advantage, he was incorrectly given the diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy. Idiopathic means unknown cause, and epilepsy is a seizure disorder. So basically, unknown seizure disorder. And I don't understand how they got to that either, because usually that takes quite a bit of testing, not just a quick and dirty diagnosis given in the ER. Maybe it's because he was a doctor, and I don't know. Anyway, uh, faced with exposure and by now a practice liar, Shipman used his medical knowledge to invent other symptoms, knowing that combined with the blackouts, the diagnosis would stick as idiopathic epilepsy. As per Paul Britton, psychologist, Shipman's deceit was pathological. He lies to other people. He lies to himself. He is able to picture himself as he would like to be. End of quote. Shipman's lies had hidden his addiction from his fellow partners who never suspected anything. I don't know how. Anyway, he lost his driver's license and Primrose had to drive him everywhere. And their friend Shirley took up babysitting the children. Shipman's feelings of self-importance and superiority could have only been reinforced by his ability to fool everyone. He displayed this to Dr. Grieve, the senior doctor at the practice. Shipman didn't like Dr. Grieve. He didn't like him for being his superior, and he also didn't like him because he wanted to run the clinic as a democracy. Shipman wanted things to be done his way or not at all. In November 1975, one of the receptionists from the clinic examined the pharmacist's dangerous drugs logbook, and alarmed, she said to the chemist, quote, My word, who has been prescribing all this pethidine? And the chemist said to her, that's all Dr. Shipman, and we're rather worried about it. End of quote. She immediately reported it to one of the partners at the clinic. It came to light that he had been prescribing medications to his patients and taking from the pharmacy and giving it to himself, as we discussed earlier. The partners talked about this over the weekend and confronted Shipman at the practice meeting on Monday. The partners asked him what was going on, and he finally admitted to taking it for himself because he was addicted to it, and he had for some time before he even started at the practice. Now, Shipman asked his colleagues if they would give him a chance and cover up for him while he went into recovery and got off the pethidine. But Dr. Grieve refused to collude, and this is what they said to him. Quote, No, we cannot conceal this. You must go and be treated in the hospital and you will then have a future and a chance of living a normal life again. This must be fully investigated, and everything must be open and above board. End of quote. Shipman couldn't comprehend why the other doctors would not protect him when they needed him so very much. Because he had such a grossly inflated opinion of himself in relation to other people's view of him, he wouldn't be able to take it. 
he would crash and burn. He simply could not compute. At first, it seemed that he was willing to comply to their decision, but soon after, he came at them hard and angry. He said he wasn't going to go into the hospital, and if they weren't going to cover up for him, too bad. No way was he going to resign or give up his keys or anything. He was a control freak, an egomaniac. His behavior was true to type, the behavior of a petulant, egocentric man who expects everyone to do things his way. Now he saw his colleagues as just like everybody else, and he was prepared to fight them every step of the way. Only he didn't have a leg to stand on, and the practice hired a lawyer. He was sent a formal letter telling him that they would dismiss him and that if he wished to appeal against the dismissal, he wouldn't get anywhere in court because he was guilty of drug offenses. He had broken the terms of their partnership. Shipman knew he was done. He had a little temper tantrum when he left by slinging his medical bag at a doctor and then kicking it across the room. And his parting words were, Bugger this, I'm off now. He got out of Dodge quick. He left town within 48 hours. He knew that he wasn't going to get anywhere with his colleagues, and he had to get into good standing in the eyes of the medical profession. He knew that he needed to be cured of his addiction, so he immediately admitted himself to the Halifax Royal Infirmary. He entered voluntarily, which always looks good. It showed that, as Dr. Phil McGraw would say, you can't fix what you don't acknowledge. So he was fixing what he acknowledged. As for Primrose and his children, they were now homeless. They had to move back in with her parents again. Her mother knew what Shipman was accused of and that he was going to end up in court for serious drug abuse. It just deepened her hatred for him. Back at the clinic, Dr. Grieve had no choice but to call the police. And the police did a thorough investigation of everything in Todd Morden, and they went through all the drug registers in Todd Morden, every chemist, every doctor. They pretty much traced all the pethidine that he misappropriated. He was charged with many, many drug offenses and made a full statement. But not before giving the police of West Yorkshire Police Drug Squad the runaround. He was very difficult, arrogant, and patronizing. He even refused to be interviewed at first. His dealings with the police were radically different than that with his colleagues. He believed the other doctors to be his peers, but the police to be below him. It was a huge in-your-face attack. Shipman's reaction to the police here is exactly the same treatment of the officers who first interviewed him in Hyde 20 years later. He was charged with 74 offenses. He avoided serving time because he willingly went to rehab and completed the program. He was fined 600 pounds. The final part of his legal agreement was that he would not work as a GP again or in other practice where he could or would have access to drugs. In his words to the magistrate, he said, quote, I have no future intention to return to general practice or work in a situation where I could obtain supplies of pethidine, end quote. His apparent cure and his promise not to work as a GP again saved him from a prison sentence, as I said. What a joke. This man is a liar. He lies in his personal life. He lies in his professional life. He lies whenever it's necessary or suits him. So making a promise not to carry on at practice so making a promise not to carry on in practice was neither here nor there for him. It simply served a purpose to get him out of a difficult situation. It was believed that he would likely do something academic at a university, like a professor. But this was not the case, of course. Within 18 months, he was working as a GP at a practice in the city 
of Hyde. And that's when things really start to take off. And I think this is a perfect time to end this episode. The next episode will really dig deep into his victims, the horrible things that he did, how he got caught, and his time in prison, his ultimate demise. So thank you for listening to this story of this horrific man, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please drop me a line if you have anything to add. I'd love to hear from you. But are we done yet? Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm just thinking something's in the back of my head that I might be forgetting to... Oh, yeah! It's that time again. It's suture time. Come on in. Have a seat. Have a lie down. Kick off your shoes. Because you're going to be so nice and cozy under the warm, warm blankies that I'm giving you. And the comfy pillows. Dim the lights. And boy, do I have a special treat for you. I have non-melting ice cream. That's right. It's the only place in the world where you can get ice cream that does not melt. So here's a couple of bowls of that. Are you ready? Because I'm about to tell you a weird and wild and wacky true story that took place when I worked as a nurse in the ER. I'm thinking, because of the time of the year, we're approaching ho 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 Christmas time, that I would tell a couple of stories that took place when I was working a night shift on Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve, night, and into the morning. It was an incredibly, incredibly busy night. And the lineup into triage was, oh, geez, um, 20 deep, easily. And so I was working triage desk with another colleague, and we had a third nurse who was at the line regularly checking in on people in line, deciding who would be seen when, and then going out into the waiting rooms and just monitoring the how the other people were doing. There was a father and son that had been waiting in line for quite a long time. We have cameras on at all times that uh, record constantly so that security can see what's going on and so that we can also have a record of the events, um, just if anything were to take place and just to see how things go. So, like I said, the lineup was really long and as would happen sometimes, people will leave, especially being Christmas Eve. There was a father and a son in line and he decided to go. And we saw on camera when he did leave. What appears to have happened next is that he drove to a nearby hospital and was placed in line again. Only this time he snapped. He was carrying a gun. And when he didn't get in as fast as he liked to, he walked into the ER treatment area and opened fire, hitting a few doctors. So yeah, we heard about that a couple hours later. And that was pretty scary. 
to know that that very person was waiting in line with a gun and went across to another hospital and opened fire. For some reason, he didn't do it at our hospital, and I can only thank the powers that be that he didn't, but didn't make me feel any better that he went elsewhere and hurt a few people. So yeah, that's a kind of a scary story that took place on Christmas Eve. That's just kind of scary anyway, but that was one event that I remember clearly. Another one was when a very large family of five came in the department. I have to say that they were large. I'm not a small girl myself. In no way am I discriminating against them, but the doctor that did take care of him didn't behave very nicely. The family had been at a family banquet, a Christmas Eve banquet, and I guess they had ordered copious amounts of Dirty Bird, KFC. The kids, so there was three of them, aged about 15 to 10, two boys and a girl, got sick, really sick, started vomiting. And in fact, one of the kids believed that he had a chicken bone stuck in his throat. So the parents came rushing in and pushing themselves to the front of the line and coming right into the triage area, demanding to see a doctor immediately because the one son was choking to death and the other two, well, all three of them were violently vomiting. We took him into a room and the doctor saw them. And as it turned out, the kids had eaten about four or five plates of full out just fried chicken only. So all I heard, or all of us heard, in the down the hall was screaming and yelling. And the doctor kept saying, this is what happens when you eat five plates of chicken. You're gonna puke. You're gonna throw up. What's wrong with you? Why are you feeding your kids so much food? You're fat. That's your problem. And I'm not surprised that you have a chicken bone stuck in your throat. What's wrong with you? And the parents were screaming and Oh my God, it was the, the craziest thing. The doctor definitely was out of line, but I'm sorry, on a crazy, insane, busy night, hearing that back and forth, I we couldn't help but just burst out laughing. It turns out the kids, no one had salmonella poisoning. They just ate too much greasy chicken and the kid didn't, in fact, have a chicken bone stuck in his throat. It just felt like he did. But they left an unhappy family and we had a doctor that was... Uh, <laughs> ranting and raving all night we had to like uh, calm him down so after a while we got a little hungry it was a busy evening so we ordered a bucket of chicken and uh gave it to him oh <laughs> uh, yeah we heard a lot more cursing after that uh, what are you gonna do what are you gonna do <laughs> and the last story i'm gonna tell you involves our friends the police. You, we, there's a lot of stories out there about bad cops. And I got to tell you, the police have always been my friend in the ER. They've always helped us, been supportive, been caring and um, amazing to the people in the community. So that's been my experience. This one night 
These guys, we weren't too happy with them. What happens from time to time is they'll pick someone up off the streets who's passed out, who's drunk. And if they're throwing up a lot or maybe evacuating their bowels or bladder, they'll put them in a hazmat suit. That's right. You heard me right. One of those zip-up hazmat suits where there's footies and it's elastics on the wrists, zipped up to the neck and hood on top. So I guess one of the guys uh, that they had in the cells wasn't waking up all that fast or fast enough. So they brought him into us and we asked them to put him into the room. They were more than happy to do that. They put him in the room and then they took off. These cops left pretty fast. Usually if it's not too busy, they'll chit chat a little bit. No, not tonight. And we found out why. This gentleman had probably pooed five or six times and peed five or six times. So he had a nice lake pond of sewage up to his waist. That's right. When we unzipped him, we had a poo pond, a poo lake that went everywhere. And yeah, we wanted to kill those guys. And we said, if you ever did that to us again, that you were going to have to put us in the cells. So thank you guys for that night. They thought it was the most hilarious thing possible. And even though we had a chuckle afterwards, yeah, we, we didn't. But us nurses, we have ways. We have our ways of getting back when you least expect it. Because revenge is a dessert best served cold. And on that note, I'm going to end today's suture room. I want to wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year if you don't hear from me before then. But I intend to have another episode out before the end of the year. But yes, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and also blessings to however you celebrate holidays. So thank you for joining me on Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, where sometimes it's the cure that kills you. <laughs>